Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and on this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss the recent Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman, which was released on Netflix in November of 2019 and tells the story of Frank the Irishman Sheeran, a story what happens to involve some of the most monumental political and social events in the mid to late 20th century. Joining me today is the man who has answered the question of how do you survive weighing 165 in the city where the skinny figures die? Tunde Ogunlana. Tunde, are you ready to share with us what you have learned? Yeah, but I can't remember because I think last time I weighed 165, I was 16 years old. <laughs> so it's been a while. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess the lesson is to, to gain weight. Yeah. <laughs> Get your weight up. All right. Now, we're recording this in May of 2020, and we wanted to to discuss The Irishman, which, again, is the 2019 Martin Scorsese movie. It's based on a 2004 nonfiction book, I Heard You Paint Houses, by Charles Brandt. Now, the, the story goes through the adult life of Frank Sheeran, who is a World War II veteran and truck driver at the beginning, and he becomes involved with the Buffalino a crime family in eastern Pennsylvania, as well as does work for the, with the team, Teamsters Union and even spend a good amount of time working directly for Jimmy Hoffa. Now, the movie brought in some of the heaviest hitters we have is from an acting standpoint, with Robert De Niro playing uh, Frank and Joe Pesci starring as Russ uh, Buffalino and Al Pacino starring as Jimmy Hoffa. And in many others, you know, as far as just really high profile um, actors who have carried their own movies, you know, Harvey Keitel is in there. It's just some heavy hitters. And it's it is considered, you know, from a critical standpoint, a masterpiece from both an acting and a storytelling and directorial sense. Um, But we wanted to get into the story, really. And, you know, because the story it's telling, it's filling in some blanks of things that. Um, there, there is no cons- historical consensus on how, how a lot of these things have happened or what exactly went on. And this movie purports to fill in some of those blanks. Um, now, before we begin, you know, along those lines, um, I wanted to say that this pod does contain spoilers. So if you have not seen it and do not want those spoilers, then you probably have to stop now. So... With that out of the way, Tunde, tell me, what about the story stood out most to you? Man, there was a lot. I don't know if there's one thing. It was, um, like you said, it was, it was um, first of all, great acting. I think for guys our age and, and probably folks 10 years older than us, you know, within that kind of age range of, of, let's say, late 30s through maybe early 50s, maybe a 15-year time frame, you know, these three actors um, stood out as kind of the, the 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 generational culture for us for for gangster movies, you know. From yeah, I know that I know that um, you know De Niro and, and um, Pacino were in The Godfather in the seventies, but you know I, I would say starting around kind of Goodfellas that time, which was I think nineteen ninety, kind of the the nineties, because you had then they were in Casino together, and you had just this kind of memorable period of, of kind of good old gangster movies about the Italian mob. And I was thinking in my head, watching it again here, prepping for, um, for our show here, um, that like in 10, 20 years, like I don't think anyone's going to be making the same type of gangster movies anymore, you know, about the kind of Italian mob in mid to late uh, 20th century stuff. And just interesting, just made me just 
I don't know, just just look at a lot of things. And um, and time and I, marches on. Yeah, and I, I guess what stood out to me, I guess overarching before we get into the weeds was the. It was a very interesting narrative of the post World War II kind of period and in, in, in just U.S. stuff, you know, just uh, with the unions, like you alluded to, some of the historic events politically, uh, that the movie kind of just the backdrop around it, I would say, from, let's say, the, the end of the war through maybe the 80s. Um, and it was just a, a different look at the American underbelly in a sense. Um, so is it just great and great acting, of course, you know, the yeah. top actors of their, of their era in a sense. So yeah, it was good. And, and of course, directing the, 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 even the cin- cinematography, um, you know, they had, they had, um, the ability to, to kind of have these guys look at different ages at different times of the movies. Um, yeah, that was wild. Changes. yeah, it just, that was it was wild. just that's what I mean. It was just an interesting whole kind of production. Well, I'll tell you, looking at the story, I mean, there's a couple of things that stood out to me. I'd say what stood out the most was, and this is something that you kind of know, but just seeing it is still just jarring, particularly from a dollar figure standpoint, is just how much the pension money was used and, and how that was used to fund so many things that are so, like, just normal to us now you yeah. know like vegas you know like vegas like the, the 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 line in there that the banks won't lend the money for the casinos because that was considered uh you know just like a a, a a type of business that wasn't honorable so to speak so the way that the the people that were building the casinos got the money was to go to the 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 teamsters of the unions who had this pension money that they could loan um you know to to then it, with the the goal being there supposedly to grow the pension money pot, you know, for, for the people who need it later. But whether that ended up happening is another story, but just that this big pot of money and how they like, so that's building Vegas, that's building projects all over the country, you know? So it's this big financial thing going on. The other thing was a little lighter, uh, was just how, uh, Frank was kind of like, like the, the, the violent Forrest Gump. You know, yeah. like the movie, the way he went through, like he was just popping up everywhere. Like I was, I thought at one point he was going to be dropping off sandwiches to John Glenn or, yeah. you know, like <laughs> dropping off suits to Neil Armstrong or something. Like I just assumed because he, every, he just kept popping up and they'd be like, oh yeah, all right, that was a major event. Oh yeah, that was a major event. Oh, he was there. He was right down the street. And so, and I actually, I saw that. I, I, I thought that during the movie. And then I saw that this morning when I was just pulling together, you know, like some of the information I wanted to, 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 to say and uh, some of the background information about the movie so I could be clear on that. And I was like, I, was, I wasn't the only person that, that thought that. I saw that at a couple other places. Um, and so apparently the, the, his happenstance as far as being in, in, in and around a lot of things was, was noticeable to a lot of people. Yeah. No, it's um, it's funny because I thought the same thing without seeing anything else about Forrest Gump. That um, you're right. Uh, just that's what I mean. The backdrop of uh, just world events and what happened, and other 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 kind of uh, cultural things in our country. Um, I think they wove it in well into this film. So yeah, it yeah. was very interesting. Well, I mean, and it's it, that is a just a, a time of change in our country. You know, if you go from the World War II era to pretty much to, to maybe the, the, the let, you could say 1980, you yeah, know, like to, to the late 70s. was the shift to kind of the current, yeah, culture. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there, there was just a lot going on there. Um, the, 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 the unions in general, seeing how strong the unions were, seeing, 
a judge, um, for example, also what was interesting <laughs> yeah. saying a judge say, you know, attack a corporate attorney and say, why, why are you bringing, you know, this guy into court without proof, you know, and then so why does this, this, you know, like basically the unions being looked at in such a power, a, a, a positive way from authority is something we're not used to at all, you know, yeah. like, so it, it seeing how that was, um, was something that I thought was very interesting. Was there anything else that, that you wanted to throw in there? Nah, that was, okay. that was good, man. Well, um, I think it was good that we looked at this um, around the same time that we went back through Economic Hitman, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which we released, you know, part one last week. We'll be releasing part two next week um, of our podcast talking about that book. Um, but one thing that really jumped out to me in watching this was how similar with Economic Hitman, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, um, with geopolitics and with what goes on uh, with multinational corporations, it seems like greed is just, you know, like greed is king. Greed is, seems to be running so much of these things and how decisions are made. And um, we saw here, you know, where economic confessions of an economic hitman looked at it more from the multinational corporation standpoint and the things they're doing um, both above board and below board to advance their interests um, internationally. Here we get to see the underbelly, so to speak, or how the sausage was made from a labor union standpoint and how that was a dirty game, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, like it, it, a lot of times there's a tendency to romanticize these things and, you know, corporate, whether it be corporations or whether it be labor. Um, and so just seeing how how the sausage is made, so to speak, from an organized labor standpoint, what, was there anything that stood out to you for in, in that context? Um. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, um, I mean, I don't know where to start, bro, because there's a, it's, it's like there's, there's the cultural context, and then there's kind of the practical way of looking. And then part of me watching the movie realizes it's a movie, and I want to know how much is is true and how much is woven in to make it a how better much story, is right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so it just. For context, like the movie does feature Jimmy Hoffa pr prominently, you know, which was at the time Teamsters Union was the biggest, baddest union in the in the country, and Jimmy Hoffa was the president uh, for a good portion of that. Um, and Jimmy Hoffa had ties to to organized crime, and that's known. Um, yeah. And you know, organized crime had ties to the union beyond just that. You know, like at all different levels, and um, the, some of the tactics used by labor oftentimes could resemble that of organized crime or even be there may be some overlap you yeah. know in terms of who's doing what for who and so yeah so i mean what would you say um, from either perspective you know either from a cultural or from a practical standpoint you know yeah, just pick I mean, one and go. I, I think it, it was a, for me anyway like you said about kind of after the backdrop of having done the conversation about economic hitman um, just that, you know, money and power always seem to find each other no matter what. Um, and, and whether that power uh, is, is, and, and money are on, you know, I think the, the union sh uh, issues under the Hoffa time showed that at that time, you know, organized labor, labor became corrupted by influences outside of it like the mafia because they had money, I mean, at the end of the day. And, um, and, and that it was a source of money for investment, right? Like you said about, you alluded to Vegas, 
and the inability to get financing for, for you know, Italian mafia from traditional American banks at the time uh, forced them to go to friends of theirs that were in positions where they could dole out these loans um, you, from the pension uh, fund of the, of the Teamsters and the unions. So that created a corrupt environment within the union system which just just to note, like them lending that money in itself isn't necessarily a negative. Like that could be a positive. That like they, they should have a fiduciary duty to grow that money. Yeah, you, know, you shouldn't just have it. Well, and that's a good point. I mean, pension funds, by their very nature, make investments on behalf of the pensioners and and future obligations that they need to make. So you're right. So this is no to, like that in yeah. itself is not the issue. But no, go ahead. I just wanted you. I yeah. knew you'd be good to. To kind no, of give just, that yeah, the, um, the ability, I mean, if we look at pensions today, um, you know, they, they invest in all kinds of things. The stock market, they, they invest in debt, um, they buy insurance contracts. I mean, there's all kinds of ways they can invest money um, and even invest directly at times what they call alternative investments, just investing directly into businesses, not going through the stock exchange or anything like that. So you're, you're right that the, the, the idea of lending um, to an organization that's going to build a casino or build real estate or anything like that is not is not um, is not uh, uncommon for pension funds. I think what was happening, what they were showing with the characters like Alan Dorfman, and what's interesting that lends a lot of credibility to the story is you know I was on my iPad the first time watching the movie, and you know I'm starting to type in these names and they're all real people, and yeah. all they all they like Dorfman was an insurance guy who ended up being one of the loan guys for the for the uh, pension who got shot in 1980 and, and assassinated because he was just part of this whole mess. And I think that's where the corruption lied was, you know, the, there were there were loans given to the mafia that, you know, not necessarily were paid back. Um, yeah. So little things like that. Um, but uh, but, yeah, it was an interesting kind of time. And, and you're right about the sausage being made. I think that's that's the reality. I mean, there's there's um, one of the things I noticed more so watching it again in preparation for this discussion was, you know, the, the movie takes place um, in terms of memories happening, but all while they're driving on the way to a wedding. Um, you know, um, the characters of um, Frank and Russell Buffalino, who are played by um, uh, De Niro and Pecci and their two wives in the car. And along the way, uh, uh, Pesci's character, Russell Buffalino, keeps kind of telling um, um, De Niro's character to pull over because he's got to keep picking up envelopes, you know, the, the checks that he's getting from the small businesses that they basically have a stake in. And it just reminded me of how much of our economy is built off that, just laundering money. I mean, basically, <laughs> what I no, but what I thought of is, you know, here these guys are driving around in the 1960s from, I don't know, where, where were they going? Like from, it was from, from, like from Philly, Philly to, Detroit. to like Detroit or something, right? So you kind of, just through the heart of America, right? This kind of Midwest drive. And he's, they're stopping at jewelry stores and hardware guys and dry cleaners and just the whole thing. And he's just picking up checks. And I thought, yeah, it's interesting. These guys were like the original private equity guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> like seriously, Whoa. they're making a bunch of money. And they gotta, they gotta move. I mean, I'm not saying that private equity is laundering money necessarily, but what I'm saying is the idea that they just had a bunch of money they had to do something with, and it made sense. Let's just invest in businesses, just a passive income. And it's, 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 and I'm sure a lot of 
just hardworking business guys benefited too because you look at him going into this shop and the guy's giving him an envelope and I'm thinking, hey, that guy's got a nice business. Yeah. And he's got a silent partner, you know, and yeah. that's just the way it happened back in the day. Yeah. And I'm sure that guy wasn't asking questions where the money came. He knew he had to give the envelope. Yeah. And the mafia guys didn't really care about the business other than they got a return on their investment. And it was yeah. a sweat equity on one end and then the other guy had the money. And... Um, I just thought, you know, it just made me realize as they're driving through this just kind of 1960s backdrop of America, I was like, it's amazing how much of our system, because remember, we live here in South Florida. Um, I moved to Miami 21 years ago, and, you know, don't get me started about the amount of stories I've heard from old-timers about this whole skyline in South Florida being built from drug money. Not only built, but the, the, the drug money of the 1980s and the whole cocaine cowboys era um, did do a lot to put up that skyline in downtown Miami. Because people just, had all that money. Yeah, had to people had money and it had to be moved into legitimate enterprises. And so, yeah. and so, you know, I'm not saying that that's a great thing or anything, but I think it's it's. Well, you can say you can acknowledge it without yeah. commenting on whether it's good or bad. But also, I mean, along those lines, though, one of the things you, that that I, I like the analogy you gave to private equity, but I'd say this: what they were doing also is, is essentially the same thing that banking is. Um, yeah. You know, like a lot of that is you're, you you put some money up or so you, you provide some level of, uh, you know, whether it be financial backing, whether it would be some type of protection or whatever. And then you take a piece, you know, each time, like a lot of the legitimate financial enterprises seem to be based on concepts that were perfected by organized crime. Yeah. You know, and so like, it, that that stuff, it, it wasn't lost on me as well. You know, what wasn't lost on me as well. Um, one thing I wanted to, 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 to say on this piece was that looking at this movie and then just seeing, you know, how things operate even to the modern day, you really never should get too far from the understanding that might still does make right in our society. And I mean, yeah. amongst human amongst human beings and human interaction. Because that, that was what really, um, you know, like when you, after reading Economic Hitman again recently and then watching this, it's like if you have, if you have the power, um, people are going, you're going to exert it, you know, and, and you're going to exert it to benefit you. It's not going to be that you're seeking fairness. It's that you're going to be seeking advantage, period. And, yeah. and that's what was happening, you know, like an economic hitman. That's what it was that there was the, the gun, the gunning for resources, you know, or they're gunning for control, gunning for to, to take money from whoever has it or take resources from whoever has it and consolidate it in themselves here, you know, with labor, the operation of labor, um, whether it would be, you know, if a business wasn't cooperating, you blow up something, blow up somebody's car to send a message or blow up somebody's building to, to send a message or something like that. Like, hey, you need to treat our, our people right. Or the strong arming that became a part of bringing the unions together. I mean, I always talk about, you know, unions being the, 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 uh, the, the, the converse to corporations in the sense that a union is organized labor where a, ca a corporation or a company is organized capital. But boy, it seems like it's a lot easier to organize money than it is to organize people. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah, organizing so. people with all those agendas and all that stuff going on, like, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a messy game. You know, yeah. it's not just everybody put their money in a pot and then I'll, I'll call the shots. It's like, you know, at each point, there could be people, things can go left because of different motivations, different pressures people have and so forth. And so... 
the, and, and, and the way that that is all kept in line, or at least how that's shown, how that's all kept in line is with a strongman or with strongman. And then when people step out of line, then the course is corrected, not by persuasion. Now, I'm an attorney, so I, you know, not, but it's not by persuasion. It's by threats, coercion, you know, physical type of thing. So, so might still plays such a role. And that's, but that's now no different than the way you see these things exercised with economic hitmen. You know, yeah. or, you know, in, in, in that story, in the stories told in that book. And I mean, so that, as you said, money always finds, or, you know, money always finds power, but strength and, and the exertion of, 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 of physical power also, it doesn't, it's never far behind from that either. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's kind of a beautiful uh, uh, look at humanity, right? I mean, at the end, these are all people. Sometimes they're just human beings too. So, um, <laughs> So the uh, no, but that's what I'm saying. It from a thirty thousand feet. I mean, this is this is um, kind of the 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 forty eight laws of power. You know, the the king's court type of thing. And you're right. I think that was to me one of the beautiful things of the film was the the human dynamic. Um, and I'm not going to say I feel sorry for Frank Sheeran because he's clearly a murderer um, <laughs> in, in the full definition of the word, but. You know, it's like you understand that at the end, this is this is still difficult stuff because it's just the human aspect of it. No matter what, clearly the guy had a, had a sociopathic side of him, and and you know could kill people for nothing. Um, but you know, it, it, it kind of near the end after um, the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, and I guess uh, the, um, Frank's daughter challenged him, asked why he didn't call the wife, Frank, uh, Jimmy Hoffa's wife. And, you know, I guess she shamed him in a sense. So at the end, he gets in on the phone and calls the wife. And, you know, the wife's sitting there distraught and all that. And he's trying to tell her, oh, maybe he's this and that. But, I'm, and, you know, I'm thinking in my head, man, that's amazing. That's your boy. You're one of your best friends that you murdered. And now you got to talk to the wife. and Who you're also act, close with. Who you're close friends with and act like you don't know what's going on. You know, it's just, yeah. and again, I'm not feeling sorry for the guy necessarily. No, 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 no crocodile tears from me. But... Well, let's, let's in- go into that. Pretty much the climax of the movie and the, the, where the movie built to, like Frank was a World War II veteran um, who killed people. Then he became a, a truck driver and eventually started doing work with, with the mob um, and where he became a hitman. And in fact, the, the, the terming paint houses is meant or, or means you, you spray people's blood on walls because you just shot them in the head. Yeah. And so Frank become he he paints houses. So he 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 murders, but he doesn't kill for nothing though. I, I don't think we should that, that that's the right way to say it. He kills based on orders. And so, but if the order comes, he doesn't question it. He'll just kill because the order came in. And so it climaxes or it culminates in the, him Frank being the one who shoots Jimmy Hoffa, who over the course of the movie he had built a, a relationship with. He had worked for him. His families had become close. Hoffa had become close with one of his daughters. Um, and so, and that he was the one chosen by the powers that be in the mob to pull the trigger and that he, you know, just, it, 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 it showed, the movie showed that he struggled with it, but that he, it was, he didn't waver. He struggled, but he didn't waver. And so he, and he did it. And then he went back to his life and the people who had built relationships with Hoffa and Hoffa's family and stuff, he goes back to them. 
And he just did it. And like, as you pointed out, you know, then he asked, they're like, well, why haven't you called his wife? Like, this happened a while ago. You know, what was it like at that point, maybe a day or two ago? Like, I thought that vote was our people. And so they're looking at him like, oh, his family knows who he is. You know, yeah. like, so the, he was the, he, they look at him like, was he the one that did it? And it ruined his relationship with his daughter, you yeah. know? And so, but one thing I wanted to point out, and I'll flip it back to you in a second, but killing for orders, I found that what he did for the mob was no different than what he did for the country when he was in the war. It was a continuation. And I think the movie did show you that, that him taking orders and shooting people in one context from a fundamental standpoint was no different than what he was doing in the other. And so, and, and you know, that piece about it, I don't know, like, I, I don't know how you sort that out once you, once you come to that realization. Like, was he an evil person was he a order taker or excuse me, yeah, an order taker who just whatever the order was, he would just do it. And, and so he was a good soldier, so to speak. Like in one context, we would say, yes, he, he's he, he should be you know, we should commend him as a great soldier. And on the other, we're like, oh, this guy's the worst person in, in society. But it's, he's doing the same thing. Yeah. So that to me was, you know, like it, it's not it's something that, you know, you, you can't escape. If you want to look at things honestly, you know, and then that's it and I, without a value judgment. I mean, like that's I get it. You know, I get that they're there. They, we do view those as differently and we do view those as differently for good reason. But from a fundamental standpoint, they're very similar. Yeah. Nah, I mean, I don't remember who it was. That I might have been Shakespeare, but don't quote me on that. Somebody said famous said uh, something to the effect of there's there's no there's no right or wrong or there's no good or bad. There just is. And um you know, if you really look at it that way, you're right. He was doing the same thing. Just, the, the, just who gave him the direction to do it um, yeah. was different. And I guess, you know, if we're Americans, so we tend to think that our, you know, in general, our government, our military, all that is is good because we're on that side. But I'm sure that if you were on the other side of an American bullet from a soldier, you wouldn't be too happy. Um, you know, from if you were another, um, uh, you, you know, well, no, you would care less. If, if, if Uncle Sam gave the order or if Russell Buffalino gave the order, no, but if you're on the point. other side of the like, bullet, you, you care less. No, but that's my point is that we yeah. as an audience will say, oh, of course, he was, you know, on one side with the military, he was doing the right thing and with the mafia, he was doing the wrong thing. But to your point, if, if you're on the receiving end of either bullet, it, it all looks the same to you. So, yeah. You're right. I mean, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, that's not a comment here or there about you know our our military or anything. It's just more of an interesting thing that he was the same guy in the end, and it's probably why you know again if 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 the movie is more factual than not, then it shows to why he was successful at his job as a hitman because <laughs> he was good at taking orders and had that side of him that could just turn off you know what I think most of us would consider a normal. Uh, human kind of uh, uh, guardrail that wouldn't allow you to just randomly kill people just because you were told to do it, um, but that made him a good hitman, you know, and that made that, him a good soldier. Yeah, like that. It, it's it's yeah. So it's it's interesting from that standpoint. Yeah, I'm not saying it with any kind of judgment. You know, like I, yeah. I, I just I thought it was like the movie was what juxtaposed that they put those two side by side. I just noticed. Yeah. It. You know, like, and I, that's all that is. So, but it um, makes, it's it's interesting too because I was reading about him like on Wikipedia, and I just realized the guy would be a hundred years old this year. He was born on October twenty fifth, nineteen twenty. So, if had he been alive, so it's an interesting point because you you think about it, 
he 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 spent his whole life, you know, from an adult, from the time he went to the war in his early twenties, um, basically as a killer, as a hitman for somebody, yeah. and um, and you know, for him to live a full life and die of natural causes, in a sense, is actually pretty unique as well. I mean, rare. That, that, <laughs> well, yeah, you know. that was another point made by the movie. When one of the yeah, when they would introduce people, a lot of times, like it, obviously, when you're in a book, when, when you write a book, you can tell give backstory on someone easily because you yeah. just do a paragraph, a blurb, or whatever. This person, this and that. Um, in movies, that's more difficult from a just a storytelling presentation standpoint because unless you can work it into dialogue, you can't tell that. So what this book, what this movie did, which I thought was helpful because they're they're purporting to tell a, a true story, is when you would when in, people would be introduced a lot of times, they they pause the screen, put a, a caption on it, and say who this person was, and then they would put how they died. Yeah, <laughs> and oftentimes it's yeah, this person died, two bullets to the head, nineteen seventy seven, and it's like man, and that was a lot of people that that you know. Like it, when they'd introduce people, they would they would show that, and they'd be like, "Oh my goodness!" So one other piece um, uh, that that we noticed that I, I did want to to, to kind of just get your take your temperature on was we saw Frank um, one of the 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 stories or one of the, the the jobs he did was drive a bunch of weapons down to Florida to be to to, to that were to be used for the Bay of Pigs yeah. uh, invasion. And, um, you know, like, so he, he drops them off, gives them to a guy who's a CIA agent and they got, you know, they got Cubans loading them out of his truck and putting them into his, or, you know, the anti-Castro Cubans, um, loading them into to, to their trucks and, and so forth. And then, um, you know, we, we, obviously we know what happened with Bay of Pigs as far as, you know, there's the invasion, Americans with, withdrew or withheld. They, they started, but then they stopped providing the aerial support that was supposed to be, that was supposed to be a part of it. And then the, 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 the invasion was a failure, resulted in a failure and an embarrassment for the United States. Um, now, that was planned in, in 1959-60 under the Eisenhower administration and then executed under Kennedy administration, which led to some of the disconnect. Um, but do you think if that was 10 years later or 15 years later that a more economic hitman style of approach in Cuba would have been implemented and could have been successful because that that's that what what I noticed there was just that okay yeah this is the old way of doing stuff when we were trying to get somebody out of power or to, to get somebody comp to compromise somebody in power is that we try to foment a revolution or we try to, to to militarily do it but remember we discussed last week that kind of the confessions of the economic hitman what that became was a way to to to, to get compliance with regimes without sending in the troops or, or trying to, to do it with bullets fired? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a tough question um, because if you um, go back to the Bay of Pigs, one of the issues, I mean, that could have gone a lot different had um, we not had a, uh, a compromise. Uh, there, there was a mole uh, at a very high level um, in the CIA and um, basically alerted the Russians to the plan for the Bay of Pigs, who then, of course, told Castro. So he mm. was able to also defend it in a way that um, had that mole not been there, you know, maybe it would have gone different in 1961. So, you know, and that's my point. Like 10 years later, the mole could have been there still and, and, and affected things. And then the other thing I think, which I'm a little bit hesitant to think it could have been different, just because I think Castro was a true revolutionary. I don't think he would have allowed himself to be corrupted in the same way. 
Um, it's kind of like, like in the book, you know, the economic hitman, how he, how he gives, um, examples of Chavez and, and, um, and, um, Saddam Hussein as guys who weren't able to be kind of, uh, you know, penetrated by the, the economic hitman and, and that the military sure. needed to be used. So I get the feeling that, you know, Castro might've been down the same road because it seems like he had a disdain for more than, like he just didn't like the American. He didn't like kind of the Western imperialism, um, yeah. and I'm not sure he could have been corrupted. So greed um, may not have been yeah, the, it, the, it might not have the been character to go after him with. Yeah. You know, so like, one thing I noticed also, or that I would say also, is that what our interests in Cuba were more political and and business wise, meaning not business from the potential to make money off of a natural resource. But uh, over the businesses that we had in place there, when Castro took over, he nationalized the businesses that Americans had been building there over the last yep. over the twenty years or so. But they, they but those were just regular businesses, and and so people, you know, the mob was upset because they controlled a lot of those businesses. But it wasn't that they were pulling oil out of the ground there. You know, it wasn't so. The, the, there wasn't a endless supply of money to be just pulled out of the ground or something like that, where the, the, the corporate interest, so to speak, would have been, because remember the economic hitman, part of that was that the government wouldn't directly be the one doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be corporate interests that would be driving that with support from the government, but it would, the government would be, would, would be plausibly, have plausible deniability on all that. Well, maybe um, you've identified something because of the fact that it was, um, you know, at least to our knowledge, it was more mafia-driven money and business that was being laundered in Cuba, in a sense, than the traditional corporations that had such an influence over government decisions. So maybe that's part of the, the, the reason also why Castro was able to come in and kind of in a kind of blindside the, the United States with the way he did things, because, you know, it's not like a mafia was going in there lobbying Congress people to, to you know, have a, well, a, a military I would say experience. it would be naive <laughs> to think that, that they weren't, but they didn't have the pull yeah, that that's what I mean, the that, big corporations yeah. did. And, 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 and also remember too, you had, you know, a much different country at the time, the image of um, the United States doing something on behalf of the mafia from a military standpoint um, <laughs> in, in an excursion in a tropical Island, you know, that could have been really messy. Um, and that's what I think that's what happened with the Bay of Pigs is it was messy enough that, you know, I think that's why Kennedy was upset. It's kind of like embarrassed these guys that, you know, what are we doing using military, kind of doing all this stuff from a government standpoint to, to help these guys prop up their casinos and kind of certain things. Like it's almost like a small group had an interest of keeping something going on in Cuba, but the larger apparatus of the United States government was kind of like, we don't, we don't need to put all this energy behind this with all the other serious stuff we have going on in the world. Well, that, yeah, and that was Kennedy, but you know, apparently Eisenhower and Nixon though were, you know, were, were okay with that. And Nixon yeah. thinking he was going to be elected in '60, um, you know, like they, they thought that they were everything was going to continue on from that standpoint. Um, so, yeah, I think that's interesting that Kennedy had such a, a a different take. But also, the movie insinuates that the mob was involved in Kennedy being assassinated, you yeah. know, as, as part of the the up being upset about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's and that, they, they don't give a ton of details on that other than to say, I think uh, Russ Buffalino at one point said, hey, if they can. And speaking of 
whether or not the, the mob would try to take out Hoffa, it was, well, hey, if they can take out a president, they can take out the president of the Teamsters Union, you know, yeah. meaning the, the, the heads of, of the, the, the mafia families. So, you know, like, yeah, that disconnect, I mean, I, I think a lot of that, and this is kind of where we, 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 what we, a part, one of the reasons we say that there, you have this time of transition from post-World War II to about 1980 or so, is it's really... Uh, Post-World War II and the United States, you know, basically being a world superpower, it seems like that period is when the United States was trying to figure out what it wanted to do with all that power. And so there were a lot of different things that a lot of testing, testing your strength here, testing your strength there. Do we want to do this? Do we want to be about this? Do we want to try that? And, you know, I'd say post-80s, we kind of know who we want to be in, in a sense, uh, and what we're trying to do, and that's not to say good or bad, just we kind of have an approach to the world. You know, we want to make as much money as possible. Uh, we want, you know, there's certain things that we find important and then other things that we're not, you know, jumping in, parachuting in for. Um, yeah. And in that time, it seemed like we were, like, we would have more escapades and more things we were trying trying to do, from a, at least from a government standpoint. Um, just, you know, again, what do we want to do with our power? You got all this strength, now what do you want to do with it? Um, so, yeah, you see well, look, that. I also think it's a transition from kind of the older way of doing things to maybe the more modern consolidation, definitely and technology and all that. Like you tell, you know, Casino was a good uh, movie to you know Vegas kind of being a microcosm um, that explained that. Remember, it used to be owned by the individual mob families, the different hotels, and they cut up Vegas in a certain way. And, you know, the movie kind of ends that by the late 70s, you know, MGM and all these, they're just all corporate owned, you know, and it's yeah. the stockholders on Wall Street that own it and all this stuff. So I think it's almost like um, that's what happened to our country in the 20th century. You know, if you look at, you know, from the early 1900s, we're coming out of the 1800s and the kind of still a lot of farming, a lot of kind of um, uh, regional wealth and all that. And then it's slowly over time, it just gets consolidated to, you know, maybe the, the coastal regions, the New Yorks, the, the, um, the, um, cause remember there used to be a lot of wealth in the deep South, uh, because of slavery, there was a lot of wealth in the Midwest because of oil and, and, and you had the gold rush in California. Um, you know, Rockefeller, for example, actually started uh, a lot of his business enterprise in your neck of the woods in Ohio. In Ohio, yeah. And, um, and you know, this. And then the Ford stuff. Yeah, you got Carnegie you know, was West. Well, Carnegie's Western PA, right? Pennsylvania, yeah. Yep. And then and then you had Ford with Detroit and the whole Motor City, and yep. all that was happening in the twenties and thirties. And and you're right about the steel booms and all that. And so there was a lot of wealth that was kind of all over the place in this country. And by the end of the twentieth century, you know, they, it's unfortunate, but we all call those areas rust belts, right? Um, yeah. That they're kind of rusted out now. That the center of the country and and. That all became, you know, people trading paper in New York with London and, and Shanghai and all these other places. So I think I think what you're identifying is something true, which is it's 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 the kind of mom and pop wealth, which also if we can include the mafia in that um, is kind of like the millionaire next door types. You know, these 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 mafia guys that were obviously doing illegal activity at the time, um, but but were amassing a quiet fortune which then, like we identified earlier in this, in this discussion, they would then pump into small businesses as a way to launder the money. But it, in the end of the day, whether one likes it or not, it was a way, the, like, the term in economics is the velocity of money. 
money would flow through the economy that way, and that yeah. helped. That when helped it was with the decentralized. It was decentralized yeah. as well, much more so than now. Um, I also, but, but think, I think that's, oh, that's sort of helped with the expansion of the United States in the 20th century. Oh, I mean, yeah. you make a good point of the decentralization of that. You know, a lot there was a lot um, there was a lot more wealth in. I guess we just said it right in, yeah, in, spread, in out. spread out amongst the country. You had smaller towns like again Ohio, Pennsylvania. I mean, you used to have families there that were really wealthy and prominent, and um, and now those are all hollowed out, unfortunately. So. Um, well, not mostly, not all, but I mean, yeah. no, that's that's yeah, you're definitely right, all, a piece for sure. But the other piece, uh, or the other way you can look at this also, and this is you know kind of illustrated in the in the book and or excuse me in the movie, and how it touches on what you had mentioned as far as how corporations came in and started taking the place of what the mob was doing within in areas as far as commercial enterprises, and that also illustrates how the legal framework determines the the participants and also the 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 outcomes a lot of times. And that is that uh, essentially when something is illegal or socially frowned upon, that creates the opportunity for the mob to come in and make money on it. You know, like once something is legal or not frowned upon, the mob has a hard time in that space because they can't organize as effectively and on as large a scale as corporations. You know, so once gambling is no longer illegal, uh, you know, it becomes harder for the mob to operate in Vegas because the corporations can come in and organize capital. Mob is still organizing people and they're organizing people and money, whereas corporations are just organizing the money. And then they can come in and, and shower, you know, drop and you make it rain, basically, to an extent that the mob really can't keep up. And so it, it, the mob needs things to be illegal to make money on it or needs things to be frowned upon. And I almost feel like what you're saying is is is. Not the exact same thing, but a similar um, that over the by the like 1970s through the 80s when when um, when when law enforcement really started coming down on the mafia, they had these enterprises and obviously they were functioning enterprises like the casinos and all that. And as the mafia started getting brought down, it's like the corporations were allowed to come in and take that ball and run with it. Yeah. So like it's almost like you know with going back to Bugsy Siegel these the, the now again I don't want to go those are the mobsters, those are but, but those are related though like it's the corporations likely once they see how much money's being made yeah. egging the government officials on to to change the legal status and to go after the mob so saying, they can get in and this is if you really read between the lines once the mafia took the risk established proof of concept then see, corporations don't use hitmen per se, in, in, in this country at least. They use, in the same way economic hitmen, they, they work behind the scenes through government officials and government programs and organizations. To, so the corporation doesn't need a hitman to show up and shoot somebody. They pay off a politician who then sets up a special prosecutor who then, then go, that's how they compete. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, no, oh, we're going to get this guy locked up and then yeah. we're going to take over the business. And so the other piece uh, that I wanted to, well, one thing I wanted to ask you um, was, and but I didn't want to miss or lose this piece, is that the this movie provided a reminder, it, if you were aware already, or just a, a view of how strong arming and intimidation were a big part of the organized labor movement. Um, and is that something that you think is necessary? Uh, is that something that was, um, you know, like it, 
what was your take on that? Like, can you have organized labor without the, the organizing principle of a strongman, without the organizing principle of somebody who is using intimidation and threats to keep everybody in line? Or is that what organized labor is? Because it would be difficult to 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 have to, to have hits and all this stuff going on like right now with with you have you know media attention and things like that the th- type of things that they that were going on behind the scenes so to speak in that movie um, it'd be difficult to do that stuff now with the way media attention is and can get out yeah like, I think you're right but I, I think um, you're right I mean it's it's I think a lot of things that happened in the past not just with labor but in a lot of areas of life and government and all that would be very difficult today because of all the scrutiny everything gets then you figure that I mean, think about it with metadata, the ability to track people. All that. I mean, someone like Frank Sheeran, I would, I would figure, might have been caught or much earlier in his career, had you know all all that been happening now with today's surveillance uh, capabilities. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, because they were shooting people dead on the street. That's what I mean. He was yeah. walking up to people, and I, I was, you know, it's funny you say that. That the first uh, scene where he shot the guy that convinced him to burn down the um, the linen place, you know, the 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 whatever business that was that um, Angelo Bruno ended up owning a part of and Frank didn't know it. And then it kind of, to make a penance, they made him assassinate the guy. And, you know, he just walks up on the street, just gives him two shots in the face and just keeps walking. And I'm thinking, I remember thinking about that, like, damn, I'm pretty sure like today there'll just be cameras there. You know, imagine some guy just just showing up dead with two bullet holes in the face, you know, they would have, somebody would have been asking questions. Yeah, people would have camera phones. Like, it's, or like, like so, when he shot another, a better example to your point about the phones, I thought of that when um, he shot Joey Gallo um, in the restaurant when he was celebrating his birthday yeah. with his family. And I was just thinking in my head, just like you said, like, shit, man, if that was today, that whole restaurant would turn around and make, you know, with the, the cell phone cameras, people would have been having his license, there would have been cameras on the front of the business. Yes, yeah, right. Just like, it yeah. would have just been a different scene, you know, and this guy would have done one or two murders and got caught and done the rest <laughs> of his, his uh, life in jail. It's just um, so yeah, like it would have been much more difficult to settle things that way. Yeah, uh, as far as a matter of course, like you can get away with stuff. But it would take much more planning. It would take much a much higher uh, threshold of execution. And so I say all that to say, like, if that is a necessary component of organized labor becoming, you know, ha- having the solidarity solidarity needed to to stand up to organized capital. I mean. Could that even happen nowadays? Like, it, 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 I wonder. Like, it is is now obviously the the cor- corporate big corporations and and corporate interests have done a good job of turning the the tide against labor from a legal standpoint, regulations and so forth, but also from a public uh, like the public sentiment is also very anti labor now. Even though you know the the public is the labor, but. They the, the people look at labor in a very negative light, and part of it probably is because of the abuses that we that are detailed in in, in a movie like this. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, if you wanted to run a clean union, could you do it? And then if you can't do it, like you can't, it doesn't seem like you could run a union like this now. Um, yeah. You know, like so, it, it, it is are we just is is labor they they're going to be a permanent uh, you know sub, subordinate to capital from here on out? Because if labor doesn't organize. Capital's going to run all over it. I mean, we do know that. No, I think, look, I'm never going to risk to say anything's permanent when it deals with human beings. So I think, um, you know, at some point, pendulum swing and all that. I'm not going to try and predict anything which is that nature because I can't, I'm not that smart. But um, 
I think, you know, my opinion to answer your question, I think you can run an organization anyway. So could you have a labor organization that doesn't have this kind of strong arm element and all that? Yes, I'm sure it's possible. I'm sure we could. There's other countries, you know, I'm sure that um, no, I shouldn't say I'm sure on anything. But um, I would assume that, you know, the, the labor unions in Sweden or Norway or, um, or Australia, you know, certain countries aren't doing the same thing that the Italian mafia was doing in labor unions in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. Um, I, I, but, I, but they I, probably still have some level of, of strong arming and intimidation, though. No, they maybe, could. Maybe, maybe I mean, I, I don't know. And again, maybe it's a good question. It's a, it's a thought but, exercise more than you're going to have an answer. You, 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 the question to your, to, your, to your comment is, you know, I guess, what extreme level on the spectrum of intimidation, right? Like, what does that correct, mean? Correct, correct. Because you're right. I mean, I'm sure all of them have to stand up and use some sort of forceful, whether it's rhetoric, just words, or whether it is, Corporations you know, do. Corporations yeah, do. Or, I mean, or, everybody's threatening to sue somebody all the time, or, and that's, that's intimidation. Or you know, like like that, France is a good example because I was amazed, I think it was like a year or two ago, um, or maybe a little longer now, two or three years ago, because I hadn't seen one of these good old French union strikes in a while on TV, and I remember that the taxi drivers were going nuts about Uber, and mm-hmm. they had some strike, that's what I mean, in recent years, um, where they did some, you know, the typical shit you used to see in the 80s when I was a kid watching the news about the, the French unions protesting where they did, um, you know, the, the, the taxi union, they were so upset that they shut some highway down and they were burning tires and you know, the kind of good old European, you know, union <laughs> protest that, that, you know, I, I used to see when I was a kid, like I said, on the news. And to, to your point, like, to me, that could be considered an aggressive way of handling things, you know, just burning tires in the middle of a highway and stopping traffic to prove your point. But to me, that would be more of a traditional protest of a union versus... Um, I would say that what we saw in the Irishman, I would consider really strong arm tactics. You so, know, like that, that's saying, people. No, no, I think <laughs> yeah. um, I think you make so raise a good mean, point. By, by, by a spectrum, a spectrum. You know? yeah. Like the, there's good types of intimidation and strong arming, <laughs> and there's bad types of good of intimidation. Yeah, well, and strong it's arming. like it's. I don't know. I say good. I don't like the idea of intimidating anyone. I mean, I think we we. But no, but that's going to be a part of human interaction, no matter what. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like, like we've talked about it. Like uh, it's, it's 2020 when we're having this conversation. We've we've talked about it privately about. Um, the intimidation factors used by some in certain states at their uh, governors against their governors um, with their dislike of how things are being handled in in terms of shutdowns and all that. Um, I would say that to me, that's, that's not a traditional protest just showing up somewhere with a bunch of guns. Um, well, yeah, yeah, that's intimidation, right? That's there. an that's, intimidation. Those COVID protesters, COVID um, shutdown protesters, are that's pure intimidation. You yeah, walking around so, with assault rifles and stuff. So that's like, what I'm saying. Yeah. From the going, you know, not to get off topic, but going back to the union stuff, you know, that that what we see with picket lines and like, let's say another one, maybe not the French thing, because let's bring it back to the U.S. I mean, I think it was in Wisconsin. This teachers had a strike in the last two, three years. I remember seeing that. And, you know, they were at the state capitol in Wisconsin, but they were there with a bunch of signs and just screaming. And that, to me, is more of a traditional way to protest, uh, you know, that we've seen that then, um, you know, bringing long guns to the capitol or like the mafia did in the movie, um, you know, assassinating people uh, as a way to prove your point. <laughs> or blowing up their car or blowing, yeah, up, blowing their up their boat. Their cars, or, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely I think you're right, though, as far as the spectrum. I, and I would say. I think that the legal environment and regulatory environment plays a larger role than we can even imagine um, in a lot of how these things play out. Um, even like it, it, 
if the laws change and the laws become more conducive to organizing, uh, I think unions can make a comeback even without needing the extreme levels of intimidation. But as the laws are currently framed and set up, it makes it more difficult. And that's on purpose. I mean, that's an intentional effort to make it easier to organize capital and make it more um you know, more difficult to organize labor. The last thing I wanted to talk about, though, um, and then like, yeah, I wanted wanted to wrap this up, um, is the movie uh, purported to provide answers to two of the, the 20th century's biggest mysteries. You know, which would be uh, Kennedy's assassination, which has a a, 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 a set narrative, but many people question, it. and then the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, which up until I guess the release of this movie or release of the book. Um, you know, there are a lot of theories out there, but no one with firsthand knowledge was 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 saying anything on. Um, yeah. What'd you think of the answers that it provided? No, I mean, um, look, they're, they're all and, plausible. And just more, uh, yeah, it just I wasn't mean, plausible, just briefly. Yeah, it just, it, it's all plausible. I mean, to me, sometimes I've learned that, you know, again, I know we've talked about this, that humans, we tend to, when we have a void of information, we tend to fill that void with our own imaginations, which usually are pretty sensational. Yeah. Um, you know, like sometimes I thought, well, what if JFK was just killed by a lone crazy dude named Lee Harvey Oswald and that was it, you know? Like we like to put all this stuff around it, but without knowing what happened to John Kennedy specifically, because I wasn't there and, you know, just I haven't heard uh, anyone say they know uh, definitively other than the, the, the narrative we've been told that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. To me, the mafia narrative does sound very plausible if you understand the history of the time um, and, you know, the, the, the assumption that were alluded to in the movie that, you know, they helped elect him, get him elected with the votes in Illinois and all that, and that they, they just felt that, um, you know, Robert Kennedy being attorney general was so aggressive. And then the, the debacle in the Bay of Pigs, which didn't help the money from, you know, flowing in from, from Cuba. Like, I could just see it being a disaster, and, and them not being happy and, and doing something about it. And then I think we talked about it, you know, the fact that after the fact, you know, there's been some evidence that uh, someone like Jack Ruby, who basically assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald on TV, um, was connected to the Dallas mob. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've all seen the footage of him shooting the guy right in the stomach and killing him. And yeah. he never went to jail. Like, I think he served like one day in jail. Like, so, you know, again, it's like you're saying about this seems like there was a lot of connections um, that that made sure that, um, you know, it was pinned on Lee Harvey Oswald and everything kind of went away after that. And um, and then on the second thing with relates to how Hoffa was killed. I mean, look, obviously, I don't think we'll ever know really that answer. But that to me, again, seems plausible. It just seems like a simple way that it yeah, would have happened. Well, that that was, they'd, they'd have just taken him to a house like you hear about. That's the way they did it. Yeah. And he just disappears. And I mean, and that's it. And it's yeah. just, yeah, it yeah, wasn't well, a no, big I mean, deal. It was, you know. What and, stood out to me about that was how simple those solutions were. Yeah, like, which you, you just, said, you know, when we don't know answers, we concoct uh, conspiracies. And these conspiracies oftentimes will be wide ranging and intricate and stuff like that. But these, both of those were pretty simple. Like, uh, you know, the Kennedy thing, it wouldn't have been some massive three government agencies and all these other entities and things like that. It was, you know, a couple of people and then the person they pinned it on, they kill. Yeah. And, exactly. and then that's it. And then with Hoffa, it's like, yeah, put, take him into a house, shoot him and then, you know, incinerate the body. And then that's it. And so those the simplicity of those, I think, makes them plausible. Um, and, and I mean, it, it, it's. It, it, who are we to say what actually happened? We weren't yeah. there. 
And, you know, like in terms of how things are documented, it's not documented well enough that you can ever come to a definitive answer, uh, at least as far as anything that's publicly available. But if, um, if, if the character of Hoffa is to be believed, if that's how he was, because it did, that's what I liked about the way Scorsese did the movie is showing that kind of human interaction and the emotional stuff. Because, you know, before his, his, his assassination, um, you kind of see where um, even, even someone like Hoffa is just a cog in a bigger wheel of yeah. stuff. You know, he had his own, the bosses of the mafia, and then I'm sure that those guys at the high level of the mafia were, were probably, you know, had guys, counterparts in government and corporate America that also were at very high levels and, and everybody kind of understands the game they're playing. And you don't really want to upset the apple cart. And I think, you know, there was a lot of times where Russell Bufalino, uh, I think at that, at that, at that uh, banquet where they were honoring Fank, he was trying to talk Hoffa down. Like, look, you got to chill out. You know, like, like people aren't happy. You know, he started kind of giving him those signals that anyone who's watching of mom. Well, yeah, knows. I mean, they spent a lot of time trying to him, yeah, Frank, and that's, trying to and, tell... Like exactly. what, what Hoffa what, did, uh, that was grandiosity we saw. Yeah, like, that's because, what I'm saying. Is, is, but that's what I mean by he did a good job showing that, right? Like in the end, it's just human beings. Like Hoffa yeah. probably, if this, that's what I mean. If this was true the way it happened, Hoffa at some point, you know, looking back at it, probably could have put the brakes on himself and said, you know what, let me not let my ego get too big, you know, just, you know, because he didn't like that guy, the, 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 the one who showed up with yeah. the shorts. and Tony Pro. He, yeah, Tony Pro. Like, if he'd have just let that go and just been like, because it seems like Tony was probably the one that was connected enough, because remember, that was a true Italian versus Hoffa who wasn't. And I think that's where it started coming down, that Hoffa was making too much noise. We'll see. And he was getting in the I way of money. What I saw there, though, was um, Hoffa... At least as they told the story, everything you say, and I agree. And, but I, I think the Pete Hoffa failed to grasp, or it seemed like the, the disconnect for Hoffa was that he no longer courted enough allies. Correct. Um, and and Frank, so, like, he basically, like, he had no allies in, in you know, the business community, obviously, as, as a union, but he had previously had allies within the mob, which helped him, but he was alienating them because he wouldn't, he just wouldn't be flexible. Like, they were asking things like, no, I'm doing it my way. I'm in charge. And it's like, well, man, there are a lot of, like you said, there are a lot of cogs in this wheel. Yeah. You don't just run the show by yourself. And if, you, if you're if you not going to work with us and you have enemies over there too, who are your allies? I mean, and you can keep in mind the whole time that the stories are told from the perspective of Frank. You know, he's, he's, the, he's the one, the storyteller. So he may be presented in a certain light that may be a little more favorable or not. But either way, you can take from even what would what could be a slanted portrait and learn a lot you know because some of the stuff we come in with a base of information that had that, that uh, of as far as what happened you know bottom line type stuff and then this fills in some of the gaps or purports to and you can take from that what you want considering the source and it's really insightful i mean it, it, it's always a lot of these things are studies into humanity and uh, you know learning about ourselves man is is we'll, 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 we can never do too much of that you know, yeah. and it's always fascinating. So, you know, we definitely appreciate the audience joining us. If you made it, if you can make it through the Irishman, though, you can, you can make it through the podcast. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we appreciate the audience joining us and on, on this journey. Uh, always appreciate that. 
Um, you know, so I get, until next time, you know, we, we, we'll call this one. And next, this week, you know, we have this. And then next week, we'll release part two of the Economic Hitman. So definitely check that out. Subscribe, you know, get all of our content. Rate us, review us, tell us what you think. Um, but until next time, I'm James Keys. Tune day with Lana. All right, thank you. Have a good day.